I will do a lecture on the goal of creation, concentrating on the words from our confession in chapter 4, paragraph 1, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, immediately after the explicit confession of the Trinity in creation, the goal or the telos of creation is confessed in these words, for the manifestation of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. This refers to um, creation's goal, a technical word is telos, our triune God created in order to manifest himself to creatures, and we could add, to be known, loved, served, and adored by his rational creatures, either angels or men. That which has been made has been so, has been so in order to manifest God to creatures by creatures. By the way, do you know that God manifests God by creatures to creatures? Sounds weird. It's in our confession. I'll read it in a second. Things created are effects. And supposed to go from the effects back to the causal agent who would be God. That which has been made has been so in order to manifest God to creatures by creatures, whether in themselves or to and by others. That's in Second London 2.2. Creatures, or that which has been made, have been made to manifest God's eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to creatures. Now, the language of manifestation uh, brings us into the arena of what we call divine revelation. Uh, Some of you probably heard of the divine economy. Uh, We have theology, God and himself. We have Economy, the outworking of God's decrees, God's doings, okay? God's uh, production of things, creation, God's sustaining of all that he has created, uh, conservation, God's redeeming, new creation, and then God's bringing the whole thing to an end. What's that word I'm looking for? Recreation. Consummation, excuse me. So we have creation, conservation, recreation, consummation, Okay? Manifestation, divine revelation, the divine economy, the economy, the outworking of the decree of God and the production of everything that exists and the sustaining of it and the redeeming of, of it and then the, the, uh, the, uh, the eternal state. Divine revelation constitutes then a manifestation of divine perfections through the divine effects, the things produced, Though the effects through which divine perfections are manifested are not themselves divine, right? We, we don't hold to divine emanation, that creation is somehow a, an ontological extension of divinity so that we become pantheists or something like that. They do not constitute God, nor are they some sort of temporal extension of God. It must always be remembered that creation is not God. Remember, I already I said it, I think, in the first hour. If you get God and not God right this week, we're happy. Okay? Creator-creature distinction, in one sense, comes from a robust contemplation of creation ex nihilo. And, and once you get that, um, you'll be... You'll be um, is the word inoculated? Is that the word I want? Kept from... All forms of theistic mutualism, if you've ever heard of that, if you haven't, you can listen to the conference lectures when Dolzell does that stuff on God and brings a fire hose of information and floods everybody's heads with all kinds of stuff. And you're thinking thoughts you never thought you could think before. Um, Listen to him. But if you get the creator-creature distinction um, in your thinking, it'll keep you from a lot of theological errors, like in the Incarnation. 
I'm getting off the notes, so let's get back to We don't confess divine emanation, okay, that which God creates in some sense is or becomes God. And we always have to remember creation is not God. We also ought to remember the following ably stated by, by Ian McFarland. This is a book by McFarland. It's on the main helpful. There's pushback I'd offer on the book. Uh, the book is called From Nothing. If you're interested in it, uh, you can get it and read it. The end of God's acts in creation do not fill any lack in the agent. I like that. Sounds like John Webster. Anybody, anytime somebody sounds like John Webster, I like it. Who's the agent? The triune God. The end of God's acts in creation do not fill any lack in the agent. So the end, the consummation, ultimately doesn't somehow enhance, wash back into God and enhance him. Since whatever emerges from creation has its immediate cause in God and thus can add nothing to what God already is. I like that. He doesn't say, and thus can add nothing to what God already has, but what God already is. You know the difference between has and is? Is is ontological. Is is quiddity. Has almost sounds like, oh, oh. You know, there's things out there. Now God has them. God just is. Uh, Augustine is just is. Thus, where we say, paraphrasing the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that the end of creation is to glorify God. The point is not to suggest that creation augments God in any way, since whatever glory creation might give to God comes from God in the first place. What is distinctive about creation is the way in which it displays God's glory. God is already eternally and unsurpassedly glorious in the threefold act of giving that constitutes God's life as Trinity. Oh, so there is. Yet please, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of his own glory to create or make. There's, a, there's Trinitarianism. There's this... There's this unsurpassing gloriousness in this threefold act of giving that constitutes God's life. You know, the procession, the divine processions, the relations, the eternal relations of the persons is what he's getting at there. But, he says, in creation, God's glory is manifest outside of God's own life in an act of divine giving that brings into existence myriad beings that are not God. And if God's purpose in creating is in this way simply that creatures should be as the creatures God intends them to be, then divine direction to creation's proper end can be understood as the activity by which God brings it about that creatures should flourish. So the goal of creation is the manifestation of God to creatures for their enrichment and not God's enrichment. Again, very important that creator-creature distinction. Uh, who is that old guy from the 17th century we distinguish? Turretin, right? If you follow me on Twitter, you know I put that a lot. We distinguish Turretin. It is absolutely... To be a good theologian, you have to distinguish carefully, right? You have to distinguish between the acts of the mediator according to either the divine or human nature. In the work of mediation, 8-7. There's, there's creator-creature distinction right there in chapter 8 of our confession that's grounded in chapter basically 2 and 4. Again, if you're going to read eight, chapter 8 properly, you better read chapter 4 and chapter 2, understand what they mean, and bring the theology with you to... Read it sideways, as the old brother says, as Grandpa James says. I'm a grandfather, too, but um, I'm not as old as him. For the manifestation of the glory of God, that creator-creature distinction is really important to do Christian theology properly. What is meant about the manifestation of the glory of God as the goal of creation, what is meant is not that God receives something from creation that alters or changes him, right? We don't want to say that. There's not like this divine 
enhancement brought to God. Uh, what's the James Dolezal way of saying it? Creation doesn't wash back into God and make him either better or worse. Listen to Confession 2.2. 2. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, any enhancement, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. That is a wonderful statement. Creation, uh, we are not to look at the things at the line and below it as something that completes God or makes him different in any sense. My last lecture is going to be a question. Is there change in God given creation? Things come into being that had no being, sustained in their being, or mysteriously moved toward this telos, this divine decreed goal or end, does that mean God has somehow changed? I hope you know the answer to that already. Creation does not complete him. He wills to create in order to make himself known to creatures, to manifest his glory. Creatures come into existence and receive the capacity to either reflect something of God, for example, inanimate things, or know him, angels and men, depending on their created capacities, and with reference to redeemed men, due to their recreated capacities, grace, God created with an end toward himself. So creatures come to be for what purpose? For the manifestation of God. Ames puts it this way, all created things naturally tend towards God from which they came. Now, there's been a pushback, okay, in the history of Christians and non-Christians thinking through this claim here. Some object that this makes God self-serving. It's all for God. And it devalues creatures as means to an end. Can you see that? If God creates surely out of his pleasure because he willed, and creations, therefore, not necessary, but contingent reality, and it has a goal or end, and that is to manifest to creatures, God, by virtue of these creatures that he's created, that seems to be self-serving, and it seems to devalue creatures and makes them just means to an end. Here's Bavink's pushback on that. He says, this is great. As the perfect good, God can rest in nothing other than himself. So if God took repose in something other than God, I want that thing he's taking rest in, you know, and cannot be satisfied in anything less than himself. Why? Because he just is. Perfection. Divine isness. There's no, there's no thing outside God that God needs for God to be better or certainly worse. He has no alternative, Bob Fink says, but to seek his own honor. Now, for us, we're going, at first, when I read this kind of stuff, I'm going, well, that kind of, I don't know if I'd say it that way. Now I'm going, of course I'm going to say it that way. Inasmuch as he is a supreme and only good perfection itself, it is the highest kind of justice that in all creatures he seeks his own honor. So this is creation, not only ex nihilo, but this is creation soli deo gloria, right? That's, that's Romans 11.36. That's soli deo gloria. This is, this is all God makes for God's glory. That's what we're claiming here. Here's the mascal. Uh, by the way, soli deo gloria enhances creatures... It doesn't devalue them. Creation soli deo gloria brings creatures into being. They don't deserve it. They're there. It brings them into being for an ultimate goal, the manifestation glory of God. That's all kindness and goodness. and that's, None of that's necessary. 
Mascalos puts it this way, that the self-sufficient God deigns to be glorified by his entirely dependent creatures whose service can add nothing to him is the supreme privilege and honor that God has conferred upon them. What, what, what has God conferred upon us as creatures? Well, a great privilege and a great honor. First of all, that we exist. Secondly, that we exist to the point, this point in our life. We don't deserve that either, right? This is a supreme honor. This is our dignity uh, above cats. Sorry. One of the professors really likes cats. If you want to know what I think of cats, I'll tell you during the break. It's not worth saying publicly. You'd have to cut it out of the message. I was raised on a farm. We like dogs. But cats don't have rational souls. Is that correct? Yeah. It's not that they don't have an animate, animating principle. Am I right? They do. Okay. Nobody likes it, but they, <laughs> they have them. We are image of God creatures. And Chuck has a lecture on that. And, and that's, that's an endowment upon us that is contingent, right, upon the decree and will and purpose of God and makes us subsequently dependent upon the same God that contingently willed us to be. Life's a gift. Existence is a gift. Creation enhances rational creatures not only by giving them being, but by orienting them toward God. And since some rational creatures, mankind in Adam, rejected this orientation, okay, man in the image of God fell, in our first parents. What does God do? God, what does God do? God acts to restore and elevate them by the work of the mediator. Contingent, redemption, and subsequently dependent upon God being faithful to his word. And he does all that. And we don't deserve, matter of fact, what do we deserve? Uh, I remember one time, there was a guy in our church, seven children, his wife mowed the lawn. He was gone all the time working. She homeschooled. She could have a baby on Saturday afternoon. They'd be in church on Sunday. Okay, he was just, she was just one of those types of ladies. And he bought a new vehicle one time. One of the guys in our church says to him, uh, I'm so glad you're able to get this big brig. Uh, you deserve it. And he said, I, I, des- I deserve hell. Which probably wasn't the you know, kindest thing to say to him, but we, what do we deserve? Do you want to get what you deserve? You deserve a break today, if you're old enough to remember that. We don't deserve a break today. We deserve divine judgment. Instead, we get divine patience moving us to repentance in a world of other fallen creatures, some of whom have never heard about God's restoration program in the incarnate, uh, the work of the incarnate mediator. Adam did not attain to something due to the fall into sin. Uh, I would say that like some sort of eschatological communion with God. Christ attains that for us and perfects us by his grace. Even that, the work of new creation, is not deserved. So this, this notion uh, that some people push back on, that it's self-serving of God, it devalues the creature, I don't think it works. Others push back this way about this soli deo gloria creation. They claim that if God created with the goal of being his own glory, then he needs creation for that end. Okay, if he created it for a certain end, then he needs that end for which he created everything. Here's Bob Inc. again. I think it's a good reply. God never seeks out a creature as if that creature were able to give him something he lacks or could take from him something he possesses. He does not seek the creature as an end in itself, but through the creature, this is odd at first, he seeks himself. 
He is and always remains his own end. His striving is always also in and through his creatures. Total self-enjoyment, perfect bliss. The world accordingly did not arise from the need in God, from his poverty and lack of bliss. For what he seeks in a creature is not the creature, but God himself. God lacks nothing, unquote. God lacks nothing. He gives what we have in order that we might enjoy that and who he is. That's a pretty good deal, if you ask me. If that's true, he gives what we have. Existence, providence, grace and redemption, and ultimately consummation. He gives us all that, that we might enjoy that and who he is. It could be no other way. There's no, like... Summum bonum above God. He's it. Surely, these comments echo, uh, I think they do, and rightly so, Romans eleven thirty six. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. There are three prepositional phrases there. I think they're very important. Um, uh, Charles Hodge provides this helpful expanded translation of verse 36. By him all things are. Through his power all things are directed and governed. So you have creation and providence so far. And to him... As their last end, all things tend. So we could put it this way. God is the source, originator, or creator of all things. God is the sustainer and providential ruler of all things. By the way, when we say God in the language of our confession, we mean by that God that is the Father, the Son, or Word, and the Holy Spirit, right? Remember, He is before all things, that is, the Son of the Father's love. And this is Colossians 1.17. In Him, that is, the Son of the Father's love, all things consist. Have you ever wondered about what does that mean? All things consist? All things exist? I think you already talked about creation in verse 16. Uh, New King James translated, in Him... All things consist. All things there, ta, panta, refers to all things not God. All creation. And in virtue of the creation and sustaining power executed by him, not only do all things come into being, not excluding the Father and the Spirit as uh, co-divine agents of the one act of creation, but here Paul concentrating on the Son, appropriating not only creation to the Son, but this language in the New King James Version, in Him all things consist. In Him all things hold their current form of being. That's the way I've kind of translated it before. If that's what that means, and I think it's John 80. Read John 80. That's what it means. Um, That's a pretty powerful statement by the Apostle right there. So we have here in Romans 11.36... Uh, by him, all things are. Through him, or through his power, all things are directed and governed. Again, this is Charles Hodge. And to him, as our last end, all things tend. God's the source. He is the originator or creator of all things. He is the sustainer. And he is the providential ruler of all things. All things redound to his glory. We could put it this way. Everything that is, is for God. By the way, Romans eleven twelve one. Therefore, give yourself away. Remember that? What's the therefore, therefore? I, I, I think it refers back to probably the entirety of chapters 1 through 11. But right at the end of chapter 36, we have these wonderful statements like verse 35 in Romans eleven thirty five. Paul echoes words from the book of Job. If you are righteous, what do you have? What do you give him? You know, that's like a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. Or what does he receive from your hand? And 
Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. That's Job 41.11 right there. It's interesting how Paul uses um, Job for theology proper. Uh, I, I think most of my audience realizes the old guys use Job a lot more for theology proper than, than contemporary people do. There's a lot of good theology proper in Job. What can creatures give to God that he lacks or by which he is enriched? And the answer is, well, well, well nothing. It's just, it's the, it's the exact opposite. We're enriched by being in the first place and by being sustained in our being and then super abundantly enriched by being reclaimed by the mediator and then the consummation will be the biggest wow we've ever experienced. I have a friend that used to try to illustrate, a long time ago, tried to illustrate what is it going to be like to, to have the, that taste of that beatific vision. Are you going to talk about that at all? Okay. Because whatever beatific vision is, it sure sounds good, doesn't it? Like a, this beautiful, marvelous, wonderful sight of God with the eye of the soul above and beyond anything that we've ever experienced, though we get a little... You know, grace is but glory in the bud, like the Puritans used to. We get little snippets of the eschatological vision now in the down payment of the Holy Spirit, bringing to light in our souls the truths of the Word of God and Christ and His mediation, the benefits of the mediator and, and the promises of God and all those things. We get the enrichment, not God. And our enrichment, especially as, as believers, it, ne it never ends. There's not a time uh, set forth in the decree of God where creatures in the image of God, fallen in Adam, reclaimed in Christ, in the eschatological state, body and soul, together, glorified, after the pattern of their own, their Redeemer. There's not a time set in the decree of God where we say, you know what, I'm done being enhanced by my Creator. I'm going to get my stuff from creatures. It's weird for us to think that way, right? It's hard because we just get little snippets during our Christian experience. Sometimes under the preaching of the word, sometimes under the singing of the word, sometimes maybe in, in prayer, sometimes possibly in private, other times in public where you get this sense that there's something way bigger than just a crowd of people meeting here. Truth is coming out of somebody's mouth and somebody with power to affect and rock changes in people's minds and souls is working privately in people. Have you ever sang a hymn where, like the congregation sang twice as loud after a sermon than they were before? That happens, right? And hopefully it's not artificial at your churches. We have a volume meter in the back. I just turn it up higher if I don't think people are singing louder. Uh, loud enough. But anyway, I'm just talking about the enhancement thing. It's not God that gets betterment by virtue of making things and sustaining them. He's going, wow, you guys are so good for me. I'm just, I'm building up myself up, you know. God is not edified by us. We are the ones who are enhanced, enriched. What can creatures give to God that he lacks or by which he is enriched? The answer is nothing. God is not in need of gaining anything by virtue of the existence of creatures or the acts of creatures. In fact, it is impossible for God to gain or lose anything by virtue of the existence or acts of creatures or even himself. I'm going to say that again. It is impossible for God to gain or lose anything by virtue of the existence or acts of creatures. Let me read it again in a slightly different tone. It is impossible for God to gain or lose anything by virtue of the acts of God. Right? We're reading the confession sideways. So when we come to, when we come to confession 4.1, we don't say... In virtue of the fact that chapter 2 says this, God is 
self-sustaining. God is say. Um, what is that? The foghorn leghorn thing that James Dolza does. Ossay, Ossay. Um, we take that with us. We don't dump it. So when we read chapter 4, we take that whole thing of chapter 2 with us and we say, whatever this thing not God is, either that thing doesn't cause God to be something other than we confessed in chapter 2, or God doesn't cause himself to be other than something else we already confessed in chapter 2. We've got to take it with us. And when we do, we have a, we have a doctrine of the Trinity in chapter 2. We've got to take over to creation. And lo and behold, our confession states the three persons. And then power, wisdom, and goodness, I think, refers to them as well. Are you going to talk about that at all? Oh, cool. That's good. It's impossible for God to gain or lose anything by virtue of the existence or acts of creatures or even himself. So creation doesn't rot, doesn't work back upon its creator and change him. Okay? True or false? If you follow me on Twitter, you know I like the true or false. Um, God has two modes of existence. The answer is false. Could somebody please say false? false? Amen. Okay, good. True or false, God has two modes of existence. False. The statement, God has two modes of existence, true or false, is in a systematic theology but published by PNR in the last 20 years. True. True or false? The author of that statement holds to the Westminster standards, at least supposed to. True. True or false? That same theologian who doesn't agree with this statement that I read in two different ways, creatures don't act upon the creator and change him, and the creator doesn't act upon himself to change him in virtue of creation or in order to create. True or false? That theologian, and at least one other, there's several more, have really caused a lot of confusion in people's minds, and we need to correct it. True! Right? We just we need to say that stuff, and I don't know why they keep publishing bad stuff. That one publisher, you know, a publisher that's doing really good stuff compared to what they used to do is Crossway. There's probably some stuff Crossway still doing. I don't know about that, but you know that our friend James Dolzell, You can de- you can delete this off the lecture if you want. He used to say that the Crossway doctrine of God. Remember that. The crossway doctrine of God. You know what he was referring to. I'm off the note, so I'm going to say it. Uh, Bruce Ware, who, as far as I know, is a very nice man. But if you read some of his stuff, you're going, uh, I don't think that word means what you think it means. You know, that, that kind of stuff. And if you read the old guys, you read Augustine, and one of my favorites is Cyril. I love it when Cyril about Alexander... Alexandria quotes somebody, and he says, this is the stupidest thing a man has ever espoused. You know? <laughs> I always quote those of Cyril. But if you read old guys, they're very careful, and they distinguish between things. And God is just God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally, in, infinitely. He is of atemporal existence, and yet temporal things come into existence. He doesn't have two modes of existence. One, atemporal, this is the frame thing. We'll talk about this a little tomorrow. And the other, temporal. The first time I read that, I'm going, I think it went over my head. I think it took a lecture by James Dozel in 2015 to, for it finally to stick in me. And then I read it again, and I'm going, this is really bad. Creation brings no change. Matter of fact, either upon God or creatures. We have to be careful. Is creation a change? No. Am I right? Is creation some sort of from something to something? Yes and no, you know. Yes, from non-being to being, 
But it's not like non-being goes to being. Non-being is a category we have to think about because we're creatures. It's hard for us. Dr. Renan used an illustration on the way here. Uh, apparently, some of you have probably heard it before. You tur- turn your Bible to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then look to the left, because if you have a Bible like mine, mine Genesis 1.1 is over here, and then there's a blank page over here. He said, that's what was there before. It wasn't like there was things. There was no thing but God, which is just weird for us to think of. But again, the utter gratuitousness the contingency of creation, the dependence of cre- the creator-creature distinction. That, that's why I flew out here, is to make sure I shove it down your throats enough times that you finally get it. Okay? It's extremely important. It's important also to note that the ultimate goal of creation in terms of creaturely experience is what the older writers called, I already mentioned this, the beatific vision. Now this is, according Richard Muller's dictionary, this is not a vision of the eye except with reference to the perception of the glorified Christ, but is an inward act of intellect and will. Note with me in Ephesians, there's something that's interesting. I think, I, I know I used to overlook this in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, by the way, chapter um, divisions aren't inspired. You know? And sometimes I wish I could have said to whoever put the chapter division here, not a good chapter division. And if he said, why? And I would say, first word of what you have is chapter 2, ver- uh, verse 1. Chi, and, is a conjunction. Okay, This is... This is somehow you being dead in your trespasses and sins connected to with what goes before. Well, what goes before? At some point in chapter 1, Paul says, I want you to know three things. And the third thing is this exceeding greatness of his power that he works toward us who believe. And this power is then illustrated. The power that he works in us, executes toward us, that terminates in us, is illustrated in, first of all, in the resurrection and the ascension and the current session of the Son of God. That's Ephesians 1, basically 20 through 23. So, I want you to know about the divine power that's executed on the earth toward you, for you, and in you. What kind of divine power are you talking about? First of all, it was wrought in the Son of God in His resurrection and exaltation. And in the subjecting or putting of all things under his feet. Chi is chapter 2, verse 1. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins, and then at some point, because of his great love with which he loved us, and then someplace, but God made you alive together with Christ and raised you up and seated you. So this is a second illustration of divine power executed not terminating on the, according to the, the human nature of our Lord in his resurrection, exaltation, and, and subjection of all things to his feet, but on our Lord's people. So this power that he wants them to know about, the power motif carries over not only into chapter 2, but it comes up in chapter 3 and certainly in chapter 6. But if you notice here, he says... You being, uh, uh, it is actually literally, and you being dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others, but... God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remember the first illustration of the execution of power was in the mediator. Now the second illustration of uh, the execution of divine power 
was in their own conversion, set, uh, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here's my point for bringing this passage up. Verse 7. This is the thing that I used to overlook. That, in the ages to come, so I think this is talking about eschatology. It's probably talking about consummated eschatological experience by the people of God after the resurrection. Once they're, once they're uh, uh, having been made perfect souls that were absent from the body and present with the Lord are then reinfused back into their renovated bodies. Uh, that's going to happen. It's weird to think about that, right? But it's going to happen. I think this is talking about the time after which all the enemies are put in their proper place. And what he says here is that grace, uh, divine power has been executed toward you, for you, in you, for your benefit, in your initial uh, regeneration and all the implications that come with that for an eschatological purpose, the beatific vision, that in the ages to come. You ever think of the eschaton as rolling and rolling and rolling when we've been there 10,000 years? You know, that hymn, it's just like we've been there for a second. When the ages that are continually coming and coming and coming, even, uh, by the way, is their time in the eternal state. I think when, the, as a hymn writer said, when time is no more, it's poetic, right? As long as there's cre creatures, there's time, I think. Anyway, if you disagree with that, you can talk with Dr. Renahan about that. But in verse 7, that in the ages to come, here it is, manifestation stuff here. In the ages to come, there's going to be this constant showing off of the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're not going to be finished with Christ the mediator, of Christ the mediator in the eternal state. It's going to still wow our souls. It's amazing uh, for me to think this way. You know, as creatures, we tend to not exhaust subjects, but at some point, you know, somebody becomes a specialist in something. There's, there's going to be no time where we even get close to getting down to the bottom of the exceeding greatness of his kindness and grace toward us in Christ Jesus. The ultimate goal of creation in terms of creaturely experience is this thing we call the beatific vision. You know the difference between archetypal and ectypal theology. Archetypal is God's knowledge of God, which is only God comprehends God. Ectypal is revealed theology, created by God for us, given by God to us. It's creaturely theology. The, S, the beatific vision, which ultimately that's the goal or end for creatures, is that it's ectypal theology without the need of mortification. Ever thought of that? How many times have you been reading the Bible and you checked the text that just came in? And probably felt a little dirty for it. Like, I need to mortify. I shut the phone off. Get out of my life. Please. I hate you sometimes. We won't need to mortify. You know, wandering thoughts in the worship of God. Wasn't there a Puritan that preached a sermon on that or had a book about that? I know none of you have ever had wandering thoughts during the public worship of God. I have, while preaching... Ugh, wretched man that I am. What is this ectypal theology without the need of mortification? Whatever it is, I want it fast. <laughs> Don't you get sick and tired? I'm 61 years old. I look back and going, why? I, how come I'm not holy? I mean, like, really holy. What do you think, Brent? ectypal theology without the need of mortification and with the continual unresisted vivification life-giving stuff of the Holy Spirit. What in the world is that? Let me say it again. 
The beatific vision is ectypal theology, an act of our intellects and will, without the need of mortification, no internal resistance to the, these operations of our soul, these capacities of our soul, terminating their intellectual whatever and volitional whatever in God with no more need for mortification and the continual unresisted vivification of the spirit of our Lord. That's what the beatific vision. It's, it's the theology of the blessed. Uh, who am I quoting there? Junius. The theology of the blessed. The theology of vision. You ever heard that before? The theology of vision. It is that for which pilgrims hope. We are pilgrims and we hope. Now, what do, what do I mean by hope? Well, it means we get both hands and we cross our fingers and we just go, I really hope this is going to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. Hope, as rooted in the promises of God, is the confident expectation that what God said he's going to do through the mediator's sons, he's going to do, and nobody's going to stop him. And what is he going to do? The agent, the son incarnate, is the appointed means through which many sons get somewhere. Where do they get? To glory, Hebrews 2.10. Who's going to stop him? No one. What's it going to be like in glory? That... In the ages to come, he might show. It. Now, here it is. It's Paul. He does this a lot. He might show rich, the riches of his grace. Nope. The exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what we hope for. And this vision that we hope for, this, this permanent status of human nature, um, Nature restored to its initial goal is earned not by us, but for us by Christ Jesus. Amen. Sufferings, and what was he rewarded with? Glory. I think that involves also, according to his human nature, beatific vision. A status, according to his human nature, that was rewarded him by virtue of his obedience from womb to tomb. By the way, have you ever thought about that womb to tomb obedience? Do we need his obedience? Yes, we need righteousness according to the law. If he's the last Adam, why didn't he come up on the earth as old as Adam was? Why the incarnation in a womb? If Adam was created as an adult, and it seems like it was, right? Why didn't the last Adam come as, a adult, as, uh, as an adult? Have you ever thought of that? You're thinking about it now. You're going, what in the world is he going to answer? Whatever I do, I need to do it in, in eight minutes or less. But you think about this. What is not assumed... What's the rest of it? Is not healed. Well, what needs to be healed? According to the Psalms, we're pretty defiled in the womb. Not necessarily by the womb, but in the womb, right? We need womb-to-tomb obedience. We come out of our mother's womb telling lies. In sin, my mother conceived me. We need him to sanctify all the stages that we have polluted. Where's the first stage of human existence that since the fall into sin, everybody except Adam and Eve, have polluted? The first existence in the womb. Mysterious to us, that's for two years from now, chapter 6, of the fall into sin and the punishment thereof. But this, this thing that we call glory for human nature was uh, was preferred to Adam via the covenant of works, but never attained by Adam. And so what we need is not to be our own Adamites. We don't need to get back to the garden. We need somebody to get us there, that glory that was preferred, that, that, that eschatological um, um, 
state of human existence better than the created state of which Adam fell short of. He didn't fall short of his created state. He fell short of that state of existence that was proffered him as a reward for his obedience. Jesus gets us there. And we get to taste of that thing in the future now. You know, the... Gerhardus Voss, the incarnation, Pentecost, and redemption applied is like a revelational, manifestational scissors God cuts through and pours into this world. The age to come, the age to come gets, or this age gets eclipsed by the age to come. Who's the first citizen of the age to come? The resurrected Son of God. What is he called by Paul? First fruits of a great harvest. So that it's one harvest, and he's the first citizen of it, and he lived on the earth for a while, and then he ascended into glory, and he's made all these promises, and when he comes again, no tears, no doctors, no funerals, no memorials. I have a memorial to go to my own mother. On my... None of that stuff in the future. What are we going to get? Uh, we're going to be in the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, Jude 24. What does that mean? Okay, now, the fruit of the Spirit includes joy. So the happy calm of soul that comes upon it once you, and peace and tranquility of the soul, once you understand the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, or something like that. A quiet disposition of the soul wrought by God's grace and Spirit in your heart based on God's truth. So we know what joy is, kind of, sometimes. My question is, what in the world is it going to be like to be in his presence with exceeding joy? That's beatific, I think, ultimately vision language. All I can say is it's going to be way gooder than we know. And we're going to be very, very uh, happy that creation is for the manifestation of his glory. For the, in, for the existence of creatures to enjoy him. And ultimately, we're going to be thankful for the plan of reclamation in the last Adam.